Hey there, welcome to part two of this amazing episode. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now continues with your Backstage Pass. Yeah. So I got I got to, okay, so, um, so your album, so now when you did, you mentioned the album you did in Nashville with... Um, Chris Noll. Chris Noll. And with Jack that Wilson. album, you redid some of your songs and had a... How did that album come together? What what did you do there? And who who was on that album? Yada yada yada. And when well, was it done? Why was it done? Yeah, two thousand and nine. Um, why was it done? Um, because of my friendship with Chris Noll. Um, I flew to Nashville. Andrew Gold, who was Graham Goulbin's partner. In, oh, Andrew Gold. Yeah, thank you for being a friend. And yeah. and oh, what a lonely boy. Amazing yeah, really, songwriter. He was a really, really good friend of mine. I have nothing but kindness to speak about Andrew Gold. Andrew Gold was incredibly kind. I lived at his house. Whenever I was in L.A., we played lots of music together. Well, him he was and, another. Him and Graham were a partnership for a while, correct? Oh, a long time. Yeah. Andrew was in the very last incarnation of 10CC. Then they had... Uh, four CDs is Wax. Right. Kind of electro pop kind of great songs, poor production, really great songs, great great songs in the life. And Andrew is just really, really good. And incredible talent. Play wax. Yeah, well, he Andrew, plays every instrument. Like a king, and uh, like you do. And he, uh, Graham, um, uh, really, 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 really thinks highly of Wax. They never quite broke through. They had one song like number seven in Britain, but they were very close. So Andrew moved to Nashville for about a year and a half. And in that year and a half, he tried to become a Nashville songwriter, which never happened because he's L.A. You can't fake it in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I was on, I'm on the phone with him one day. He says, why do you come? Your songs are kind of story songs and they like story songs i'll set it up i'll sit down i'll set up meetings for you so how could you not do that so i flew to nashville and he set up a bunch of meetings for me and i wrote some songs with two nashville writers and they were really good one of them was covered by uh, uh the disney label lyric records and was a minor hit but most importantly i went to a coffee shop or uh, not a coffee shop a jewish sort of diner called noshville's and <laughs> what a great name, Nashville. And I'm sitting there with a guy, and in walks Chris Noll, this guy who knew the guy I was with. And hey, come join us. So Chris sat across from me, and Chris was with John Denver his whole okay. life. And then, of course, John died. So after John died, Chris, who was from New Jersey but lived in Nashville, became sort of like a hired gun, an amazing piano player, arranger, uh, and makes a living doing whatever he can. And I just really liked him as a human being, and that's how I judge everybody, but if I liked him or not, not by anything else. And so I came back, and I, I've always loved my version of She Loves You, ever since I did it on my Super Tramp tour, when Richard Hodgson said it was the number one song. I'm going to put a and link I, of I'm going to put a link of that, by the way, into this, because your version of She Loves You is so far away from the Beatles, and it makes so much sense. I've never heard a cover that cool in my life of a Beatles song. Very much. I did it uh, on the car. I was, I've never had anybody else slow down a Beatles song, except maybe Ticket to Ride and by the Carpenters, and I slowed it down. And it's an amazingly interesting lyric that nobody ever hears. All they ever hear is, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't hear about apologize to her and pride can hurt you too, those great lines. So I made the lyric more important than the chorus. And I dropped the yeah, yeah, yes, and I slowed it down, and I changed two chords, and I phoned Chris Noll up. 
And I said, Chris, I'm coming back to Nashville next month to continue my meetings. And could I hire you to do an in-home version of She Loves You on the grand piano? And if you'd be kind enough to put a flute on it. And, oh, yeah, man, yeah, I'd love to work with you. What will you charge me? And he said, a hundred bucks. And I thought, whoa, that's incredible. Wow. So I go to his house and I, there's a big American flag on the, on the, the porch. And we spend the day together. And it was a day. It was a good six, seven hours of work. And we did She Loves You. And he put a flute and he put strings on it. And we sang it live. He played the piano and I sang it. And that led to me making the Exposed Soul album, which was four separate trips to Nashville, where I'd go down there and do four songs with Chris in Sound Emporium, which was one of the top studios in Nashville with a Nashville band. So there was Jack Pearson on guitar, who plays with Alabama, uh, Dow Tomlin on bass, who plays with Brooks and Dunn. The drummer was a guy called Chris Brown, who played with a band called Sam Nash, who's a huge bluegrass guy, and uh, Chris Nola on keyboards, and Barry Greenfield singing. And we played them all live, me in an isolated booth, and we did four songs. And it took us three takes each song because those guys had the charts. And they, I, I don't know how they do it, but like the guys in LA, they just play it the second they hear it. And it sounds like they've written the song. And then we did this th the four songs. And then I said, now let's do She Loves You. All the guys were gone. Chris had the grand piano. And I went in the booth. And the tape that you link below is five, because I always control the takes. And I said, take five it is and take five we used and then chris put strings on it and to me it's one of my finest moments in music because i'm working with one of the greatest songs ever written by the best songwriting team in pop music and you have to be a fool to butcher it although a lot of people butcher beatles songs Yes, they do. And and the one thing you say you took away from the chorus where the yeah, yeah, yeah. But the nice thing about that is the piano still, the piano does bling, bling, bling. So you get that part inferred in your version, but it's not in your face like the yeah, 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 which is what everybody talked about when it came out. They, yeah, well, they, miss, they miss the importance of the song because of the hook. Well, that was conscious by me. Um, I wanted people to go, yeah, 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 when they're listening to it. So I said, Chris, play the yeah, yeah, yeahs on the piano, and hopefully the audience will sing it subconsciously In or their head. audibly. Yeah, that's what I thought. I have no idea if it's true, but I've done the song tons in concert, and I've used the backing tape that Chris provided me, and I sing it live and play the tape. And um, it, it's a heartfelt moment because you can tell the dude who's singing it just loves the Beatles and just loves the song. And I love, I love the song. I think it's such a sad song about John talking to his friends saying, hey, you know, don't lose this woman. You know, it's, it's so easy to lose a marriage. It's so easy to lose love. It's so easy to listen to your ego and your loud mouth in your head. Think about it. You know, Pride can hear you too. Apologize to her because she loves you, man. She loves you. You know that can't be bad. She loves you. And I think John Lennon, you know, was in his early 20s when he wrote that with Paul in Paul's dad's house. And um, it, they, were, they were just really understanding human behavior. They so were, many of they're so ahead of their time on everything. everything. And, I love like, what, and I love her, yeah. What an incredible, incredible thing. 
Unbelievable. Well, God, we've touched on so many things. What else? What else you want to talk about before we close? You, by the way, Scott, you have some questions. I, I like to get these guys to ask questions because they, they think of things I'll never think of. You know what? I am. I'm enamored with today's show. We always interject with follow-on questions and get a chance to interject with our guests. But Barry, I, I'm serious. I'm speechless. I've just been sucked into listening to to the storytelling you do and, and, and the passion that you have behind what you do and why you do it. I've actually don't have, a, I probably have a thousand questions. I've just been just drawn into today's show. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, you can't fake passion. You, you can't pretend to love somebody. And the word love is such a silly word. It's so abused. It's so overused in music. And I really love music. And I really wouldn't do this with anyone but Mick DeLevee because I, have, I, I am naked here and I am telling the truth and I'm sharing stories out of school. And uh, I don't talk about this kind of shit a lot, but I've been asked by people to write books about it and stuff. And John Shields and I, is another reason why I'm here because John Shields is a heart-centered dude and I feel, I feel safe and that's you know, why I've been I yeah. actually do have a question and this is a really important question because when I listen to you I think there's a difference between people who get into music because they want to become famous and they want the glory and the money and the fame and all that and there's people that get into it because it's a passion it's a movement with inside them For and, and I think the things that you've talked about and the way you describe why you do what you do. There's got to be a golden nugget in there for people who want to get into this business, because I think hearing it from somebody like you has far more weight than somebody that just wants to do it because they want to be known. What would your golden nugget be for people? Well, don't, don't be a horse rider if you don't love horses. Don't be an artist if you don't love creating a picture. And don't go into music without finding what it is that you love about music. So what I love about music is really, really simple. I love songwriting. And there's so many people out there that write songs because they're four minutes long and they rhyme words and it goes together nicely but they're not songwriters they're writers of songs so find what you do well if you were a great guitar player work 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 on being that guitar player if you're a great arranger do that don't be a um a uh, jack of all trades be good at something and then find people that are better than you at the trades that you're not great at. I mean, I can bang off on the piano. I can't play piano like Mick DeLevee or Chris Noel, but I can write songs. And so uh, I use my song as my calling cards and I surround myself with a team of um, wonderful people and I don't do stuff. I never do stuff I don't want to do in my life. Oh, it's really true for me. That's my answer is do it because you want to do it and not because you want to make money from it because that's a mugs game. Mm -hmm. I see the genuine passion in that. Thank you so much for that word. Of Thank you, Scott. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to be the same yeah. old dude in the room. Right? Okay. Charles, Charles, Charles wants to speak as well. 
You know, a theme that came through in all of your stories was your fearlessness, Barry. And I'm just wondering, and you, you said, I don't know where it comes from, but I'm wondering if you could take a moment. Um, I would love to know just because that to me struck me so much, your courage and just like it was normal getting on a plane to go meet John Lennon. And well, um, that, yeah. that seemed to go throughout your career of just, why yeah. not, you know? Well, there's a picture. I'm pretty sure I sent it to Mick. Uh, and you can answer this yes or no, Mick, whether it's a picture of me, um, it's on my fridge right now, the day that I was at Apple, and underneath it is the word fearless, and that's a, a, a little fridge sticker I bought from my wife, um, because I think fearless is what you have to be. And to be fearless, you have to uh, be willing to live with the consequences and not fear them, fearless. So where did I get the fearlessness to go to Apple and ask them to listen to my silly little songs. Um, I think being raised in apartheid, being raised in racism, um, is, is what steeled me a bit to other crap. I don't sweat the small stuff much. Uh, I've, I've been rejected by, you only hear the positive stories. I've been rejected, man, lots. Mm. Uh, Mel Torme told me to fuck off. That really hurt. Lily Tomlin told me to fuck off. You know, um, that really hurt. Didn't need to say that to me. Um, but I've been given so much kindness. Um, like Jimmy Haskell, who was the top arranger in the world, invited me to his house for three days. I mean, this is the guy that works with Frank Sinatra. So, you know, I walked into his house and I didn't, I was just Barry. I was just, you know, I did my job. Didn't pretend I could tell him how to arrange. So you have to know where your strengths are and you have to know and be willing to accept failure. And failure is never fatal. Success is never final. And the other thing that I believe is you learn more from failure than from success. And you've got to never give up. Like when I first met my wife, uh, we've been married now for five years almost. Um, she said, you would doggedly, um, you wouldn't let me, you would doggedly, and this is my word, not hers, because it's not true, hunted her. But I did, I hunted her. I just knew and I'd waited 63 years to meet this woman. And I love her from the bowel of my heart, from the belly of the beast, I love this woman. And I knew it. Before I met her, because we spoke on the internet for a few weeks with emails, because didn't, we didn't want to meet first, when to just talk on the, on the computer. And um, it's the same with, I didn't go, I went to John Lennon because of, he was the Beatles. And they said to come, man. They invited me. They were on the TV. They said, come. I didn't, they, Absolutely. they invited me. But I saw that. the courage to get on the yeah. plane and go do that. <laughs> and it was scary, man. I was shit scared. And, um, but I wasn't fearful the difference hmm. thank you interesting thank you. with that picture to over your left shoulder what is that is that me playing the guitar is that the picture that I know oh is that what it is okay yeah that's that's i'm gonna get that down because it's actually worth looking at because it's historical oh i'll pick it up don't worry this is live <laughs> tv yeah look at that all right so okay i've lost you Come that's back. okay right, you just back. have to push your button back this blue one here? Should be a picture of a camera somewhere. You just push it. I got it. There it is. I just found it. There we go. Great. Perfect. 
I just redid my makeup, so I look a lot better. All right, see this picture here? <laughs> yeah. Okay, this was taken by D. Lippingwell, who I'm sure you know, Mick. Yep, I know her very well. Okay, this was my very first big concert, and this was with Supertramp at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. Wow. Actually, I just made that up. That isn't true. This isn't the picture I thought it was. This is a picture taken about six years ago at the Rothstein. But D. Lippingwell took my picture with Supertramp, and I have that outside there where you can go get it. But that was a picture that um, uh, I kept forever. And D. Lippenwell gave me as a present. It's out there. It's not this one. But it was this one, but it's not. So edit all this out. It's all nonsense. Did you not talk talk to me about uh, Roger Hodgson, I think it was, who came up to you and loved your version of She Loves You? Yeah, Roger Hodgson came to me during Soundcheck. That's an interesting show. Roger Hodgson from Super Chat, by the way. Yeah. The lead guitar player. There was... Um, a phone call at two in the afternoon from Bruce Allen. And he said, Hey, Greenfield, he always called me Greenfield. Um, Triumvirate have just been busted at the border. And Triumvirate are a three piece metal band from Germany that were doing the tour dates with Supertramp. And um, they can't play with Supertramp tonight at Queensbury Theatre. Will you play there? And I thought for about half a second. Why would Bruce call you? What's, what's the background there? Well, we were friends and or never friends, but we were associates. And uh, I guess he knew me. I think he respected me. I think he still does. And um, he knew I'd be ready because I'm always ready. And um, that's, you know, I've never been asked that before, but I think because he knew I'd be ready. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, go on. So I said, yes. And uh, he said, we'll be there at five o'clock for sound check. So uh, I said, how much are you paying me? He said, 400 bucks, which is a lot of money for me. So I went down there at five, five o'clock, a quarter to five, never been in the theater to do a show before or anything of that, that, that size. And Supertramp's gear for Crime of the Century was all on the stage with a yellow umbrella. And I loved that band. And I went and sat in the stool and I played my sound check, three songs. And the sound check guy, who was Supertramp's sound check guy, said, um, do you have one more? And I said, sure. And I wasn't going to do it in the show, but I thought I'd like to hear how it sounded in there. So I played my version of She Loves You. And it lasted two and a half, three minutes. And then, thank you, be back here, you know, 7.30, you'll be on at 8. So got off the stool, and my heart's beating, boom, boom, boom. And standing there, boom, was Roger Hodgson, who looked like Roger Hodgson. <laughs> and he said, hello, I'm Roger. I wanted to thank you so much for coming in. Uh, with such short notice, you've saved our bacon. Thank you, thank you. Uh, who arranged that Beatles song? And I said, I did. And he said, that's the number one record. That was his phrase. That's the number one record. And I said, thank you, Roger. And then I did the show, and I did eight more dates with them based upon that show. But the interesting part about that show is a CKLG disc jockey, I don't know who it was, came out before I came out and said, the place was packed, almost, I guess. And he said, um, we have bad news. Triumvirate were busted at the border. Uh, can't play tonight. So we have a uh, Barry Greenfield. He put his hand out. And I don't know whether it was 20% or 50% booed. <laughs> out. Booed. And so I'm walking out, sat on the stool, and just made the booze work for me by talking about it. And all I could see from the first time was people walking out to go get a drink at the bar at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. 
So I'm saying half the audience will laugh. It might have been more, might have been less. But by the end of the show, the response to my songs, my 45-minute set was, I believe, so strong that a lot of them had come back in because the place looked full again. And I got two encores. Wow. And because of those two encores, I'm pretty sure that's why I got the rest of the dates. And it was $400 a date, plus room and board, plus I got to know Roger Hodgson, Benny Benberg, the drummer I really liked, and the bass player, whose name I don't remember, and the weird, crazy uh, Davies guy, the other guy. The piano oh, yeah, player right, yeah. yeah. Really aloof, really different than them. You could see they weren't a band that were going to last. Hmm. But they did Crime of the Century, and I saw it every night. And when they started off with the harmonica in school, oh my God, they were so good, Mick. They were just, they were such a great band. I saw them, I saw them in their heyday. I actually got to know Russell Pope, their sound man. And I saw them in the Edmonton Coliseum uh, at the sound desk and watched the whole show from, from his ear perspective. And it was I unbelievable. He, I wonder if he was the guy that did the Community Theater in 1974. I yes. wonder. Yes, he was, part of, he, was he was he was actually he was actually an equal member of the band because he uh, even in the quietest moments, if you look on the credits, he gets credit as co-producer. I know the name. I've heard the name. Well, yeah. I didn't. I'm sure I met him every night, but I don't remember. But uh, he uh, it was the it was just to see them play was I went on quite a lot of tours after that. Um, Chichen Chong, Mary McLaughlin, Maria Muldaur, um Cheech and Sean. Now there's an odd one. Yeah, Barry well, Greenfield opening up for Cheech and Sean. Yeah, yeah I did. He three days. my eye. <laughs> yeah, three, three days. It was so bizarre. I did three dates for them, and that was the last day I played live when I quit the business. I was on stage at in, in either Kelowna or Vernon. It was the Peach Bowl. Is that in Kelowna? Peach Bowl? Mm, uh, maybe. 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 And I made an announcement uh, at, when I sat, I walked out, sat down to do my 45 minute set and said, this is the last time I'm ever playing live in public. And I kept that true for about 30 years. Wow. Now, so what year was that? I'm going to say 76. But I don't really know. Wow. So they were in their peak then. Oh, yeah. They were, were huge. Yeah. Door number three. And, and, and yeah, and uh, and Gay Delorme played with you, and Gay Delorme wrote "Eric My Eye" basketball Jones for them, and he was <laughs> and he was actually they were a comedy trio. Gay Delorme yeah. opted out when they went down to L.A. to start their Cheech and Chong comedy routine. Cheech Marin and Gay Delorme wrote that first album. Tommy Chong funny, didn't. I never knew that. And, and, and Gay Delorme stayed back to become a musician, and, and great musician. Oh yeah, fa fantastic! I played yeah. a lot of dates with him. Well, I played two songs with Gay Delorme in Tommy Banks' studio in Edmonton, Canada Sky and um, uh, uh, one of the boys from my Sanctuary record. And he played Slide, and he was really, really good. And about 25 years later, I phoned him up. He was living in New Westminster, and I said, will you join my band? And they were called Greenfield Greyhound. And he told me one of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned. He said to me, Barry, when you're in a band, the band has to learn how to play the song by the way the boxes are. So play it completely one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, before you start experimenting. Because once you learn the song, you can then experiment with it. And I never really thought about that before because I'd want to change the beginning and change the ending and extend the solo without really learning the song. And so that was a very valuable lesson. Did Alarm, who has now left us, as so many of them have, um, was a very intuitive, uh, clever 
insightful musician. Yeah, well, him and I played as a duo for a lot, uh, quite wow. a few dates. Yeah, and that was probably separation. I think that yeah, I know. I think that was right around the same time because I saw the picture, and I know that he, because of his. Uh, his health concerns he had lost yeah. his eyesight in one eye Diabetes. and the picture and the picture with you I can tell that he's lost his sight so we were working with him at the same time in yeah. two different sort of vocations yeah. or, or when I say when I went with Gay I would say his eyesight was 30% yeah me too yeah um, he could he couldn't drive I'd pick him up always yeah. but he could obviously see his amp and he was a great guy to play with because he'd work. He wasn't lazy. Yeah. Well, uh, the interesting thing about him, we, I brought, we brought this up in uh, one of our other interviews with Mark LaFrance, again, I believe, because once again, we're talking about songwriting. And one of Gay's biggest headaches was the fact that he wrote the rodeo song. Well, it's 40 below and yeah. I don't give a fuck. He wrote that song. It was one of his biggest songs of all super things, but bands were recording it all over the place thinking it was public domain and not giving him credit. And of wow. course, so he's trying to hunt down all these bands and getting and writing SoCan saying this band has released this song. This is my song. They've sold 2 million albums. Uh, you know, and he says, who's, why aren't people looking out for me here? This is my yeah. song, you know, and he had to do it himself and sound that's just the way it works you know you need help in this world and you can't do it all yourself I think I said that to one of our friends a few minutes ago you know you need he needed he needed to have a good lawyer and he needed to do it properly you know I mean he was a it wasn't a, it was he was much more talented than the than the than the life portrayed so this comes full circle we hate lawyers but we need them <laughs> yeah. Well, they, everybody should have they do serve purpose because it's it's legal at a baby, as Pete oh, Townsend yeah. said. You know? Well, my friend, my good friend Bill Alman, who's a he went in to become an entertainment lawyer, and he's by all by all levels, he's as good as they get. However, he let the bar go, and for the same reason as you, he says, "I don't want to be one of those people." He understands it. He has lawyer friends who can be one of those people. He couldn't be one of those people. So now he's an impresario. That's what, mostly what he does. Mm. You know, he puts on shows, et cetera, et cetera. But he's an incredible, he's, he's a brilliant mind. And he, and, you know, I mean, I, I, one of my best friends is Don Jordan, who's an incredible uh, corporate lawyer. And I, I, so, but once again, Don comes from a musical background. He understands the arts, which is always a nice thing, you know. I think there are good lawyers, man. Yeah, absolutely. Far between. There's one other story I just want to share apropos to this entire conversation, which I want to thank all four of you for, because I think it's been really healthy for me to visit these things so clearly. And the questioning has been so astute. And I want to thank you for making this possible, all four. But I want to, you asked me anything else I want to say, and it's a story about Nashville. Um, as you know, Mick, of late, I've been liking to make videos for YouTube because I see it as a fun thing to do. That's primarily why I do it. And I do them from all, all history of my songs, some from the 70s. One of the last ones I did, which was for New Year's Eve, was a song called Sometimes. And it's a song I've never put on a record, but it's a song I recorded in Nashville with those great Nashville players. And it was an up-tempo 12-bar that I wrote. And it's a meaningless song, but I've always loved the energy of that song. And I spoke to Chris Knoll about it a few weeks ago because so I wanted to clarify my, my understanding of the song. And I said, was that the day that Bob Dylan was in Studio A when we were in Studio B in the Sound Emporium? 
because I think it was. And Chris said, yeah, Bob was there. So the story is we get there. I get there at nine in the morning. The band would arrive about 9, 10, 9, 15. And I'd always make a point when I went to Nashville to meet the band in the parking lot and help them carry their gear in. And he was the same band for the three years I went to Nashville. And I always helped them carry their gear in because no matter how great a drummer you are, you don't want to make four trips when you can make two. No matter how great a guitar player you are, someone can help you with the guitar, maybe not the amp. Just make it easier. And I know that they even... I know that was an important part of our relationship because they always said, Chris said, they always got excited when they knew it was a Greenfield session. So we're sitting in the control booth and the way that these things works in Nashville is we have an MP3 of the song, which is Barry Greenfield on the guitar. And Chris and I have spent the day before in Chris's studio working out the arrangements where the drums will come in. Chris has done a Nashville chart, which is just numbers. The, the four guys come in, they get coffee in their styrofoam cups from the machine in the front. And we're all sitting in the studio playing the MP3. And then I'm telling them what I want. And Chris is explaining it through the charts. And they're quiet and they're listening. We're about to go in the studio and the owner of the studio comes in as a huge, huge heavyweight uh, producer in Nashville. And the best thing he ever did was Common Threads, the Eagles record. They got the Eagles back together, I think. And he was a very nice man. He said, listen, Bob Dylan's coming in today around about noonish. And he's going to be in Studio A. And his management have really, really strict rules. You don't talk to Bob. You don't look at Bob. You don't ask Bob any questions. You don't tell Bob that you love his music. You don't tell Bob shit. You don't talk to Bob. If you talk to Bob, Bob will get in the car and leave. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what we were told. And it kind of worked. We we're a little bit scared. So we start playing and... At some point, go to the bathroom, let's say it's one o'clock, and you, you can't hear Studio A, but for some reason you can hear the Hammond organ, which sounded like Bob Dylan's kind of Hammond organ. So I swear to God, the four of us went to the bathroom 50 times in the next three hours in the hope that Bob was taking a pee. Well, Bob never took a pee, as far as I know. And eventually we go, eventually we go, and the door is open in Studio A, and there's nobody there, so Bob is gone. So I go inside Studio A by myself in this big cavernous room, and there's amps and there's the hammer, and I walks in. He's confrontative. What are you doing here? Who the fuck are you? And he said, who the fuck are you? What are you doing here? And I said, I'm Barry Greenfield. I'm in Studio B, and I just wanted to be in Bob Dylan's atmosphere. And he just he flipped on a dime. He just changed completely. I guess he knew my name. He said, oh, I said, where did Bob stand? And Bob stood. I went to where Bob stood. He said, said, what happened? He said, it's the weirdest session I've ever done. He said, they all arrived. They hardly talked to each other. They played for four hours. Um, Bob took every single piece of recording stuff that was every digital, every software, everything there was that was recorded. We have no idea if it was a record, a rehearsal, learning songs. They just played for four hours and then left. And I then come back in and tell these guys this story. And they were worried out there was worried that some strangers was in the studio because of all the expensive microphones and gear in there. So years later, I listened to sometimes when I was making this video. It just sounds so really alive. I think that has a lot to do that Bob Dylan was 15 feet away 
making music for four hours. And those four hours were partly the time when we were doing our three takes of sometimes. And I think that everything that happens when you're making a song, uh, whether you're working at home in your studio, Mick, and it's what's going on around you, gets into your fingers, gets into your brain, gets into your heart and comes out on the song. So if you've got Bob Dylan down the hall, it makes a big difference. When you're opening for Supertramp, you play better because it's Supertramp. So I've always tried to be in the proximity of genius because I think it makes you, which is me, uh, slightly better. Or, or find the place where I need to go to be the best I can be with my gifts and my skills. So being around Bob Dylan, I think, is an interesting story because I think it affected everyone in the room. It's all we were thinking about. And they all went to the toilet. And they all wanted to <laughs> see Bob's toilet. Like well, and, synergy is the word for it, I think. <laughs> you know? And, and, and no one was going to speak to him. We definitely weren't going to say, hey, Bob. I know I wasn't anyway. Yeah, everybody was of like mind, you know. Uh, so, yeah, there's a synergy that happens. I mean, it, you know, uh, Mecca, was, Mecca was right next door and you guys were all facing it. Well, yeah, I met Ringo and um, I was with Ringo for about seven or eight minutes. And I swear to God, the... Um, the molecules in the air changed. It was, it, it wasn't the same. Uh, I was, I was invisible. I felt when I was with him. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? Interesting. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Barry. You were, you were even better than I thought you'd be. I mean, my God, we've talked now for over three hours. Okay. Well, I'm sorry for. No, two hours. Pardon me. Well, sorry. Well, I, I my, my sense of time is no good. <laughs> Great for a musician to say. Anyway, it's been a wonderful two hours, and all, all four of you, um, uh, I felt you every minute of it, John, and uh, everybody else, and uh, I've shared my heart and opened my soul, and I'm only 70. Um, my best songs, uh, or equal to my best songs, are still to come, and the next song that Nick and I are doing is called uh, A Beautiful Band, it's a tentative title, and it's about our love for the four lads, and uh, what a brave attempt it is to try and do a song about them. I think it's kind of crazy, but I know Mick's going to make it not sound beatly, but sound heartful. And I'm really looking forward to it as much as any song we've done. So, uh, oh. can, can you hold on for a sec, Barry? Uh, yeah. Sc Scott's going to sign us out here, but I'd like you to stick around because I'd like all four of us, I'd like John to come on and we'll all talk for a while after this. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to go to Lou. I'll be back in 30, a minute. Awesome. Okay, great. Awesome. I want to see if Bob Dylan's in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand. <laughs>